Well, one of the great uh, hallmarks of the Christmas season is tradition, uh, returning to familiar things. And we have returned uh, this uh, Christmas season to uh, the gospel according to Luke, to a familiar story. As we turn to this text in our reading in Luke chapter 2 today, you can find it on page 857 of your pew Bibles. Um, sometimes coming to a familiar text can be challenging because we think we understand everything that's in there. We've heard it so many times. Um, God's word, of course, is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So we pray uh, that His Spirit would work today, that we would see new things, new glories, that it would convict us of our sin and bring to our hearts the comfort of the gospel. Well, uh, before I read, I want to draw your attention to four elements uh, that's going to serve as my outline. I don't have an outline in the bulletin. I crafted the bulletin too many weeks ago. Uh, But our outline is just going to be looking at these four themes that are Ideas that Luke repeats in this short passage. And the first is registration. Um, or if you're a child taking notes, tax. T-A-X, tax. Um, the second is manger. The third is angels. And the fourth is the shepherds. So I want to draw our attention to those four elements as we read from Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 21. In those Days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby Lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the same that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, 
when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer of illumination found there in your worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Every time I come back to this text, I am I'm really struck by the, the repetition sort of the very mundane way the passage opens. In the first four verses of this short seven-verse paragraph, Luke is talking about uh, registration, about taxes. What could be more mundane, more sort of boring? Um, And it's almost as though the birth of Christ is an afterthought. So I want to reflect a little bit. Why? Why does Luke put this so central to this story. Well, first, it practically explains why Jesus of Nazareth, I should also say how, Jesus of Nazareth is born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth, from Galilee. That's where the angel visits her. And then uh, the registration requires them to go return to Bethlehem. Um, Some Historians quibble and say, well, that wasn't a a, a practice uh, of Roman census taking that they would have had to have returned to their birthplace. But that was a practice of Jewish and Israelite census taking or registration that they would have registered according to their tribes. And it was common for Rome to defer to the local custom to register them in a way that was in keeping with their own practices. So practically, this explains to us it's very important. Um, Some might have quibbled, you know, you say Jesus was the son of David, born in the city of David, but why do we call him Jesus of Nazareth? Well, he explains that right here with the registration. But second, and and perhaps more importantly, it continues this theme, which we've seen through the last four weeks, namely the contrast between the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist. And this contrast between Jesus and John is meant to illuminate for us, to illustrate for us, uh, right out of the gate in Luke's Gospel, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5, began in the days of Herod, king of Judea. That's when the angel comes to Zechariah, a priest serving in the temple, and announces the birth of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet. But here, when it comes to the birth of Jesus, we are framed up not in the context of Judean Jewish kings, but we are framed up in the global context of Caesar Augustus. John is the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus is the high priest of the New Testament. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he is Israel's Messiah, but he has and brings salvation for all. Luke, who, of course, was Paul's companion uh, throughout the book of Acts, in that final chapter of the book of Acts, he's writing in Acts 28, in the, in the first person plural, as Paul is going to Rome, we, we traveled there to Rome. 
uh, Luke is explaining and has that same burden that the Apostle Paul has. For the, the Jewish Messiah's saving power for the whole world. And if we think of Luke's gospel, again, as the first of, of a two-volume work, the whole story arc of Luke Acts is announced by Christ as he's ascending to heaven. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And so here, that story arc of the whole book of Luke Acts is, is sort of foretold, foreshadowed in the opening chapters. The prophet of the Old Testament, born under Herod. The Messiah of the New Testament, born under Caesar Augustus. I think, third and finally, with this registration, uh, I'm going to defer to uh, my good friend Martin Luther. Um, and he writes, I think, somewhat surprisingly, but compellingly, in a time when there was a conflict and debate about the relationship of the believer uh, to the prince, to the governor. There was many, many wars in the Protestant Reformation, and these were already starting to, to bubble up a little bit in the 15 teens and 20s. And Luther writes, The birth of Christ took place exactly when the emperor Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. This was no accident. The birth of Christ was timed to coincide with the census because God wanted to teach us the duty of obedience, even to a heathen government. Had he been born prior to the census, it might have appeared that he was unwilling to be subject to the Roman Empire. But at the very first moment of his life, Luther writes, Christ and his parents had to give evidence of obedience, not to God, but to the heathen emperor, the enemy of the Jews. There was a, and this might have lapsed by now, I don't know, but as when I first got to D.C., it had long been on the books, uh, the so-called Hyde Amendment. You might be familiar with Henry Hyde, uh, an old lion of the House of Representatives, who got inserted in a spending bill many, many moons, many, many years ago, an amendment that no government funds should ever be spent on the abortion of a child. It's a wonderful amendment. It's a wonderful principle, right? But for many years, Christians in Washington, D.C. staked themselves on defending the Hyde Amendment. Our taxpayer money won't be spent on abortions. Again, I support the Hyde Amendment. I think it's uh, now, sadly, either been lapsed or circumvented, as many government policies are over time. But the shocking thing is that Jesus, Mary, Joseph, first thing we find them doing is paying taxes or being registered to pay taxes. And they pay for the taxes that do support the slaughter of the innocents. They pay for the taxes probably that pay for the, the nails and spear that will pierce him through. It's not as though Jesus is paying for good government. It's not as though he's paying for a judicious or prudential government or wise government. He's paying for the enemy. And they're jackboots over the land and the people of God in the Old Testament. Luther continues, This is the strongest proof that Christ's kingdom is to be distinguished from that of the world. Jesus didn't come to change earthly kingdoms. He came to bring a heavenly kingdom to earth that was a foretaste of our heavenly glory. Christ did not wish to erect a kingdom like an earthly king, but wished to be subject to a heathen government. This government that was regarded by him and his parents as an abomination. 
It's a good reminder the spiritual nature of Christ's work, even here at the very beginning. And one last point as I reflected on this registration, thinking about the story arc of Luke-Acts. Paul ends in Rome, uh, a prisoner of Caesar. He's appealed to Caesar. Caesar's at the end of the book of Acts. Paul there bearing witness, though in chains, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. His bondage to the earthly Caesar doesn't keep the gospel from progressing in the city of Rome. And Luke starts this story with Caesar. There's Caesar at the beginning and Caesar at the end. And one of the great themes is is that the, the Christian faith doesn't come here to upset the kingdoms of the world, but to upset our hearts, to turn us to faith in Christ. So this registration theme, I think, is is very important in the part of of Luke's overall argument. I want to come to a second theme, uh, manger. Uh, Three times this word manger appears in our text. And uh, if you want to think that, if you want to see if if something is significant in a biblical story, it's helpful when an angel says, this is a sign. Usually that means it's significant. That's what the word means. The angel says, you will see this sign. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Well, what do signs mean? What does this sign mean? Why the emphasis? Glad to see we have a a fresh baby here in in the church. First, uh, the manger is a token of the unexpected. Uh, The fact that Christ is born in a most humble estate. He is uh, not only without home, born to sojourners, to travelers, though they are in their home city, who couldn't find a friendly place to lodge. But he's, he's laid in a place where animals feed. He's born in a feeding trough, or laid in a feeding trough. Yes, he is born in a royal city, the city of David, but not Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the traditional city where, where Jesse was from, David's father. But he's born in such humble circumstances. The very idea of the incarnation, God and man, king and peasant, as it were, hang together in him. And it's not enough to take on the weakness of human flesh, but he has to be laid in a manger where animals feed. Second, as I searched the Old Testament a little bit for perhaps some allusion that Luke is trying to make, I, uh, I saw probably the best candidate in the opening lines of Isaiah. Isaiah is the great prophecy, of course, which takes us to uh, the prophecy of the suffering servant. But Isaiah opens by saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, and they have rebelled against me. In other words, the, the Lord is weeping as a father over his prodigal children, the entire nation of Israel. But then Isaiah continues with this poetic image. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Israel is blind to their own Messiah. Even an animal knows where their food dish is. You know, my dog loves shredded cheese, Millie. She likes uh, Costco, Mexican-style shredded cheese, the fine stuff. And uh, when I put it on my scrambled eggs in the morning, as soon as the bag wrinkles in the refrigerator, she could be upstairs 
And she, you hear her jump off the bed, tear down the stairs, and then she's sitting there patiently waiting for her few strands of shredded cheese. The donkey knows its master's manger. Isaiah continues, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Paul can say, I wish I could be condemned to hell to save my brothers. Who had all the covenants, who had all the promises. They should have seen their Messiah. They should have seen their need for salvation. Not, not again, for earthly deliverance from the taxation of Rome, but their need... For the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So this manger reminds us of the blindness of the Jewish people. That was such a burden to the Apostle Paul and to Luke. The blindness. Yet, which in God's majesty, which in God's wisdom, he uses the blindness of his own people. To shine this light to the whole world. It's those branches that are grafted out of the tree of salvation. That allow the Gentiles to come streaming in as prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then the Lord will bring them back in, he promises. We must remember always when God's word is preached, when his law is preached. When we read of Israel's sins, not to shame on Israel. They were so foolish. They were so ignorant. So blind. Not to see their own Savior. We need to remember that this law is for our hearts as well. We repent daily from our own blindness. Our own darkness to God's grace and majesty here and now. In our difficult circumstances. Israel... So blind to the Christ because they're complaining. Why has God not kept his promises? Right? He is keeping his promises. And yet the Savior comes in humility. Not in power. Not in might. Not in strength. Do we miss the humble character of Christ's kingdom in our midst? Does our search for glorious kingdom here and now. For the best life now. For health, wealth and prosperity. Does it blind us to how he is here with us in our sufferings, in our trials, in our afflictions. How Christ is saving and redeeming even those difficult moments. The third element I want to reflect on in this passage that, that shines forth is, is the angels. Now the angels are common to both Matthew and Luke as messengers. Uh, they come to announce the birth. The birth is foretold. It is fulfilled. Promises are fulfilled. But in Luke... We see the angels leading this heavenly chorus. This is unique to Luke's gospel. Christmas is the great rejoicing. And here in our story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, the angels themselves sing carols. They sing, Hosanna, heaven itself comes to earth and rejoices. Think about that. This is uh, their song, their carol. It's broken out in our text. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There are in this simple hymn uh, three pairs of terms. 
They jump out a little bit more in the Greek. We have God and man. Uh, Those people here is anthropos. Theos and anthropos. God and man. We have the highest and the earth. We have heaven and earth. God and man. Heaven and earth. And then we have God's good will. God's good pleasure. Those with whom he is well pleased. And man's peace. We see in Christmas... These great contrasts come together in the babe and the Christ child. God, out of his sheer good pleasure, became man. He left the highest heights and humbled himself to the lowest depths, even to the obedience, the point of death. Even death on a cross. He became sin that we might become righteousness, that he might bring us peace. And that is joyous, great news. Both Matthew and Luke use this... uh, This expression that's found a few times in the New Testament. This great joy. Mega. It's it's the Greek word. Megalane joy. Great joy. Rejoice with a great joy. When you hear it, when we hear this song, we should want to sing. Christmas should well up in our spirits. And I want to turn now finally to the shepherds. Again, we get this alone from Luke's telling of the nativity Uh, the angels uh, were thought to have been at mount sinai with the giving of the law and so that's one reason we see this parallel here the old testament is given at mount sinai in the form of law and the angels come here and we actually see the word for preaching the gospel they proclaim the good news to the shepherds and remember that at mount sinai there's this emphasis on on the boundary around the mountain you can't even touch the mountain lest you die it is though god and moses are saying be afraid be very afraid this mountain is bad for sinners because of god's holiness and here we see that on a flipped on its head the shepherds begin by fearing a mega fear a great fear and they say no fear not Have a great joy. This New Testament doesn't bring fear. It brings joy. It brings peace. The angels, the first angel, Gabriel, came to Zechariah in chapter 1 and said, this is going to happen. And that's the story of the Old Testament. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is what I will do. I will send you a son. He will crush the serpent's head. It was that promise of a coming Savior. And now, for the first time, the angels can preach the gospel as fulfilled. This has happened. And we see the different reaction, right? Zechariah hears a promise, and he's mute and silent in his unbelief for nine months. And the angels hear the promise, hear the fulfillment of the promise, and they go. And they're not silent. They tell. They believe uh, this is the word of the Lord. They say... Let's go and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They don't doubt that this angelic messenger is bringing the Lord's own words to their ears. They go with haste. And Luke writes, they make known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard them wondered at what the shepherds told them. These are the first witnesses. The first sort of Christians, as it were. Who hear a message proclaimed to them and go forth and proclaim it to others. They are prototypical believers. They hear the gospel, this first sermon, 
Christian sermon with faith, and they proclaim it to a world lost in darkness. May this great joy be ours this Christmas day for what God has fulfilled in our midst, every promise ever made. One concluding thought, not really a a theme, now that we've looked at the, the registration and the manger and the angels and the shepherds. One concluding theme in the circumcision, we read in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, and the Greek uses that term that appears so often in these first two chapters, at the fulfillment of the eight days. Because the law, the law of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the keeping of this commandment. At the fulfillment of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Luke closes this scene with the circumcision. And again, the emphasis is on fulfillment. Jesus is called a name that he received before he was in the womb. The end of Luke's gospel, Jesus on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And he tells the grieving followers who didn't recognize him. He tells them, you fools, you unbelieving fools. Wasn't wasn't it necessary that Christ would suffer and then enter his glory? Wasn't it necessary for there to be suffering and then glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus said, the whole Old Testament bears witness to my suffering and the glory that that cross brings in the forgiveness of sins. And before Luke can conclude this episode, Christ bleeds. He bleeds for us. And I have in the front of our worship bulletin a selection from one of my favorite poems of Milton on the Nativity. But I have want to quote another Milton poem because I think it's actually more powerful about and upon uh, the circumcision. He begins with lots of, uh, you know, 17th century language, gets kind of highfalutin. But then he says, He, Jesus, the Son, who with all of heaven's heraldry uh, existed, entered the world, and now bleeds to give us ease. Alas, how soon our sin sore doth begin his infancy to seize. And then the second stanza reads, O more exceeding love or law, more just? Just law indeed, but more exceeding love. For we by rightful doom were remediless, were lost in death, till he that dwelt above high throned in secret bliss, for us frail dust emptied his glory even to nakedness. And that great covenant which we still transgress entirely satisfied. Born of a woman. Born under the law. And the full wrath beside a vengeful justice bore for our excess. And seals obedience first with wounding smart this day. But oh, ere long, huge pangs and strong will pierce more near his heart. Christ Jesus was pierced and crucified, abandoned and rejected, that we might be welcomed and received into heaven's glorious halls. Let us rejoice and give thanks.
Merciful God, we thank you that you seal your kindness to us, your mercy to us, with bread and wine that recall to our hearts and minds and present to our faith the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you meet us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our sin, to wash us and to purify us and to make us whole. And we know that our progress in faith is is slim. We aren't as hasty as the shepherds in coming to the manger. We aren't as faithful in bearing witness. But you are faithful when we are not. Lord, as we celebrate this day, this feast day, with fine food and drink and gifts, may we ever be mindful of the greatest gift given to us in your Son, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen.